How's everybody doing tonight? <clears throat> We're getting bigger. The Wednesday night service is getting bigger. We're going to have to thin this out a little bit. Ted, we're glad you're with us tonight. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to, uh, to Aaron for playing for us. Where is she? There you are. See you hiding behind Mr. Gary. Thank you for playing, having that ready. That was beautiful. And I have to say, we're very thankful for the special guest, Mr. Cello, back there. That made it uh, a totally different experience, totally different dimension to things, and uh, we're very grateful. There are others with certain skills to do more if they want it. And all I want to say about that is, short of kazoos or harmonicas, if you've got other musical things that you'd like to bring, we would sing more on Wednesday night. We would do more if you wanted. And um, I'm just, I'm just, it's an invitation. You're, you're welcome to, to think about that. Um, upstairs, is the sharing thing working? Because I don't see any connections. You want me to start, shut it down and turn it on again? What's that? Okay. Yep. Great. We've assembled tonight to fellowship with God and his word. According to 1 John chapter 1, we have fellowship with God through the word of the apostles. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ gave us their message from the Holy Spirit through them to us. They gave us their message, which is the New Testament, so that we would have fellowship with them and their fellowship was with God. We're told that Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and when he, when he does that with his blood, when his blood goes on cleansing us from all sin, we have fellowship one with another. And usually people read that casually and think that means I have fellowship with you and you have fellowship with me because of the blood of Jesus. But if you read 1 John chapter 1, he's talking about we have fellowship with God. If we are walking in the light as God himself is in the light, then listen to it. Then the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's the Father we're talking about. He, because it's His Son. So it says, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's talking about fellowship that you have with God. Now that is a miracle that the infinitely righteous and holy and loving God in His perfect infinite holiness is inviting you into the fellowship that he's always enjoyed, the Father with the Son and with the Spirit. It's a precious birthright that you enjoy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we sacrifice it on the altar of uh, idolatry to self when we sin. And the solution to personal sin is confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9 to God. And uh, that is in view and in a desire for reestablishing fellowship with God. The Lord Jesus says in uh, Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. People try to make that a walk the aisle verse. Jesus is talking to a church, the church of Laodicea, and uh, it's composed of believers, and they need to reestablish fellowship with Jesus who wants to come in to them and dine with them, and that's fellowship. That's not a salvation verse. 
That's a fellowship with Christ verse. And so what you want to do is make sure you're walking with him. And when we self-evaluate and say, am I walking with him? And you say, you know, I really don't think I am. That's the moment right there where you need to say, what is it? What's the thought, word, deed, omission, commission? What's the thing that he is bringing to my attention that stops this fellowship? And sometimes you might just come to the realization, I've been just trying to go it on my own. I'm just not humbling myself before him. That is something to take to him because he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So that's the moment of truth, of of uh, cleansing, according to First John one nine. So I give you a moment for silent prayer, a precious time to re-engage your spiritual life if you need to. And if you if you're if you're walking with them right now, then just be in prayer for the message tonight for some time that'll be really profitable as we turn to the Word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for cleansing us, for redeeming us with your son's work, and then cleansing us consistently. We thank you for the privilege we have to know you on your terms, to fellowship with you and your word, to think your thoughts after you and love you as you deserve. Father, let us love you tonight as we seek to obey you, looking at these mechanics for walking in fellowship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're hearing from the Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ on the instructions the Corinthians needed to hear concerning spirituality. Spirituality. When you talk about being spiritual, you need to think 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 3. And we're going to focus in on that last three verses of that, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 tonight. We'll get some context. But the topic tonight is maturity and how that relates to spirituality, Christian spirituality, and the concept of spiritual maturity. And that is a really interesting topic, spiritual maturity. It's one of the topics that isn't talked about. There are several reasons why it's not talked about. It's very challenging to parse out. Uh, you cannot handle 1 Corinthians 2 with, uh, with heavy hands. You can't ham-hand this. You've got to be very careful and precise to see what exactly Paul's talking about with what. We've spent several, several uh, hours on this so far, and, uh, and, and it's, it, we're going to spend some more time tonight looking at maturity as a spiritual category. Now, um, we know one of the great things about living where we live is winter. Right up until February 15th or so, and on into March and then April, uh, we kind of get done with winter, but right now we're on the, the leading end to winter, and we can actually have scenes like this where we live. That is a neat thing. It's a romantic idea, and um, as long as you're bundled up, I'll tell you, the, the most enjoyable thing in the world is to go from being uncomfortably cold to cozy and warm. In fact, if you get uncomfortably warm, it's worth it to go outside and get uncomfortably cold again so you can get warm again. It's the neatest thing. You, know, you have to do this with... Uh, artificially with air conditioning where I'm from. Uh, (laughs) We have friends watching right now who will turn the air conditioning up to really blow the house cold so we can feel like we need to have our pajamas on when we want to get cozy. But here, it's just a way of life. Um, I never understood why a thick bathrobe until we moved up here. Now I get it. It's a good thing. It's really great. Hi, Nell. If you see me, 
pointing at you, that's me pointing right at you. If you felt like I was pointing at you and, I wa- and you weren't Nell, I was. I was pointing at you too, but I want to definitely say hello. Um, I mentioned Nell by name because in February she'll be 100. And when you're two months from 100, I'll mention you by name as well. Um, the scene in front of you on the screen is obviously um, a winter skating rink, skating scene. And uh, this is just a neat thing. You know, you can do this where we live. There's a couple of skating rinks within 10 miles of here that they run, I guess, in the wintertime. I don't know how they do it. I think they've, they've got some sort of electrical refrigerant going on. But um, what a wonderful time that we have uh, to spend together. The, the way church works a lot of times and the, um, the, the, the in and out and the kind of seasons of, of a church in New England is um, the people stop coming right about January, mid-January, because it's just cold and we just want to hunker down. <sighs> Maybe the internet will stay open. If the internet lines freeze, then we're in real trouble because then we can't live stream, but, you know, first world problems. But uh, we hunker down and everybody says, well, they'll start coming again in the spring. But then as things start to thaw, Maybe the, the answer is, um, well, we're just so excited about the spring. We can't waste this beautiful Sunday or this calm, you know, bra- balmy Wednesday evening to come to church because we've got to be out and, and, and enjoying the, the new vitamin D richness from the sun. And so we won't be there in the springtime either. But then in the summer, it's just so hot. It's so hot and stuffy that um, just, uh, maybe we'll just not go in the summer. And what I'm saying is um, you pretty much talk yourself into coming to church in October. <laughs> and that's it. And that's not any way to live. So I do you know, encourage you to continue making the effort to get out and fellowship together. And uh, if you're watching online and you could be here in, in, in person, I just want to say I'm impoverished by not knowing that you're here with me and seeing you, and I miss you. I miss you, and, and I'm glad you're getting the live stream, but it'd be much better to see you in person. Um, but anyway, we're in, in the wintertime, headed into winter here in Connecticut, and we're talking about maturity, and so I want to think about uh, the different phases of life we go through. This is what's going on at my house every time it snows, is uh, we, we spend about um, an hour getting everything ready, about 15 minutes in the snow, and then we put gloves back on because they come off of little toddlers in the snow, and uh, there's about 15 or 20 minutes of snow with little toddlers. Now, the bigger kids will stay out all day, um, but, um, but there's toddler gloves. That's my favorite thing. It's my second favorite thing. My first favorite thing is to feed a toddler soup, hot soup. It's the most, most enjoyable thing to do with a toddler, um, and then the second is to put their gloves on in the snow, and their little hands are cold, and, and they want to be in the snow, but they're too cold, and, uh, but, uh, but this is to be expected as part of life, and babies need to be taken care of. But, um, but as they get older, they start branching in, out into new things. Have you ever been to the ski slopes and seen the little kids that are mature skiers? Drive you nuts. They can't read, but they're zooming down the, blacks, the black diamonds like, uh, like they're in the Olympics. And, uh, and you're supposed to watch out for the little kids so you don't hurt them. But they are just jetting back and forth, zipping all over the place. And you're like, how are they able? Um, when I was a kid, I, to go skiing from Texas, you got to drive about 18 hours or something from where I lived. Um, another neat thing about where you live, uh, you can just jump in the car and go skiing anytime in the winter. Just up the street, just, just uh, several mountains within uh, a short drive from where we live. Um, uh, but I, I went skiing three or four times in my life, snow skiing. 
And uh, anybody here a skier? Just by right on. Okay, wouldn't have known that. Young people. Oh yeah. So the four times I went, I was the guy that looked like a Chevy Chase, you know, like scene or something. I was the guy cartwheeling down the blue dot uh, slope because I was just, you know, I know if you point your skis to the bottom, you eventually get there. And um, plant my skis up in the 40 feet above where my body ends up and. Uh, you know, when you're young, you heal fast and easy, and, and when you're older, you don't heal so quick. I'm going to try to avoid any further injury uh, <laughs> and all that. But um, I was always amazed at uh, the little kids that were just, they're like, they're like little snow elves on skis. It's just amazing. And um, the thing is, they're, they're skilled at it. They've got a lot of training and practice. They've lived on that, that slope uh, long enough that their little brain and their body, their muscles, their sinew, all the, all the whole body is, is now able to manage these four edges of the skis to do exactly what they want to do. And it's like walking in shoes. Like when a kid first learns to watch and walk in tennis shoes, that, that's an actual skill because it's not the same as walking on bare feet. And so they, they're just awesome at it, but they get older and they start doing craziness and, um, and eventually they're ready to go be an adult doing these adult things. And by the time you're, you've been a, a, a zippy little kid on the slopes and then you're a fully grown adult, what you see with a little kid or with, with a, an adult skier is they get tired of it a lot of times. I've known several people that said, oh yeah, I just lived on the ski slopes as a kid. I can't stand to go anymore. And that's, that's an amazing thought to me that you would be so good at something that I will never be good at and they'll never do it again. But, um, but this is just a picture of maturity and progress. And what I wanted to show you was that I can be fully grown on that ski slope in all the right gear with my second trip ever to the Red River, New Mexico to, go, to ski down the little mountain they've got there. And I am not a mature skier. But the little five-year-old that's been up there all, all winter, and he's been doing it for three years already, who's like laughing at me and saying, hey, don't hurt the little kids. He zips past me. You know, that guy is, he's a mature little skier as far as the skill of skiing goes. And so you have to be careful about the analysis. My illustration is intended to introduce maturity. Be careful about analyzing maturity as a factor of just age. There are a lot of fully grown men who are not really men. All the ladies said, amen. There are a lot of males in fully grown man bodies who do not think with the discipline necessary to, do, to be manly in life. It's a big problem in our day. It's been a big problem in every civilization. You can check that out in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapters 4 and 5 is about a, a country that should have men and they don't. The men are scared. The men are little boys in their souls. And so as we, continue, as we begin to look at the concept of spirituality and Christian maturity, spiritual maturity, I just want to, to get this, this thought that maturity is not necessarily a function of age, but you do have to put the time in. You do have to put the time in. So let's get some, a running start to get to 3.1 and start in 1 Corinthians 2, verse Six, the DJRT, the David Rosalind translation says, however, compared to the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, we, the apostles, do speak wisdom among the mature. In the evaluation of the mature, the mature believer who is attuned to the word of God and knows God well, has a mature relationship with God, 
He knows that what we say is wisdom, what the apostles, now remember, Paul is establishing his authority, and the, the Corinthians have rejected the apostolic authority of Paul. And so he's got to make this claim. He's got to keep saying, listen to the apostles, and that's the whole context of this passage. Now, it is not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, so that's temporary, the highest muckety-muck, septuagenarian ruler, the king and his court. That's a 70-year-old. The people with the wisdom supposedly to rule. This is not the wisdom Paul is talking about. You don't have a PhD in this wisdom, he's saying. The rulers of this age don't get it. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the concealed or the hidden wisdom. It's a mystery because it's a hidden thing. Man doesn't get this. Man can't know this. We have to get it from God. It's, and so understand, the topic is the wisdom of God revealed through the word of the apostles. And what we call that is the New Testament. It is the word of God from the apostles. That's what he's talking about. Now, look, now let's, let's keep working through this. We, the apostles, speak this word of God that is our New Testament scriptures now. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery that concealed the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages to our glory. It is the glory of the apostles to be able to speak the oracles of God in the establishment of the church, the body of Christ. It is the glory of the apostles and therefore ours. God ordained before the ages that, we, that they would be part of this program of revelation, which none of the rulers of this age have known, back to the rulers. For if they had known the wisdom, but they didn't, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You don't know God if you reject God. You don't know the relationship that God is calling you to through his word if you reject him. And this is my big problem with uh, cultural Christianity where everybody loves the Lord. You've heard me talk about this before probably, but it's a good illustration. Where I'm from, everybody loves the Lord. And most people go to church. But if you talk about what Paul's talking about, where you're actually in the Word, oh, that's extreme. That's, that's radical. That's way over the top. I mean, it's not like we're just trying to be little Jesuses or something, except that in Antioch, that's where we were first called Christians, and that is a term of, der- of, of, uh, der- a term of derision that means little Christs. Yeah, we are trying to put on Christ. In fact, that's what we're doing. And we are to consider ourselves as those who are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, that's the program. But it's radical. No one thinks this way. This is the wisdom that is hidden and it's been revealed and opened to us only through the apostles of Jesus Christ. And the world rulers don't know this. The rulers of the world have no idea. If they had known this wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. But just as it's written in verse 9, what things the eye has not seen and ears have not heard and into the heart of man have not entered, these are the things God has prepared for those who love him. I've highlighted this theme that runs through this whole passage. The things, the wisdom, the hidden wisdom, it's the word of God through the apostles. That's what he's talking about. And when he says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered into your heart, he's talking about knowing God through the apostolic testimony. He's talking about what we have today as the New Testament. Let that sink in. The richest, highest, and greatest thing that God has done for us as believers is the word from the apostles. 
there's nothing greater on earth. Think about all those peoples, all those poor people oppressed in communist Vietnam who are not allowed to have a Bible, who do whatever it takes to get hold of some fragment of the Scriptures. Those poor Christians who for centuries in the West and in Europe never had access to the Scriptures. Think about what we're talking about when we say the richest, most valuable thing you can imagine, it's even more valuable than you can imagine in verse 9, is the Word of God through the Apostles. And, that me, and that's why we focus, we, we direct our attention. Do you know how much time it took for me to be able now at 42 years old to translate this with confidence that I understand how it's come from the Greek as Paul wrote it into English? Do you understand what kind of effort was involved in coming to this understanding? Now, I'm not complaining. I'm saying this is, this is my life. And I want to share with you that's why I do what I do. But this is not some hack job where we're just copying and pasting Bible verses from BibleGateway.com. This is work. This is work worth doing. And there's something that happens when, in my thinking, when I go from the Greek into to English, when I go from what the Greek writer is saying into English and I redo the process that the Lockman Foundation Scholarship Scholar Society of translators did what the king james translators did what the new king james translators do there's something that happens when i go through that process and it's precious to me and um it gives me a measure of certainty about what i'm saying that i may not really differ substantially from my english translations but all of a sudden i'm not very casual anymore i'm very specific and careful with how is god through the apostle bringing meaning into english language. I mean, from the original language. Now, why do I mention how valuable this process is? Look around. This is Preston. Serious students of the Word of God right now in Preston. I can't account for anyone else doing anything else. I just know that's true of you here in this room. This is not a popular thing we're doing. It's not a popular thing to spend some time in the Word. But it's the most valuable thing that God has given us as believers. You can't imagine. And and here's why. Here's why it's so valuable. Pastor, you keep saying the Bible's valuable. Because this is how you know God. This is how you have a relationship with God. Oh, no. I go up on the mountains. I go to Mount Monadnock and look at the snowy peaks and think of God. That's not what the Bible says. That's what I have seen. I like to hear the symphony. I do, too. And God invented music. But what we're talking about here is better than anything you've ever heard. Ah, I'm an idea person. I like to think and use my imagination. I can imagine all kinds of wonderful things. Yes, but you cannot imagine the riches of knowing God through his word. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we do every time we assemble. As we're going for this thing that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, and hasn't entered the heart of man. These things of God's wisdom that he prepared for those who love him. And there's the question, do you love him? Oh, I love the Lord. Do you value his word? I love him. Do you know him? I love him. Do you obey him? Oh, I do obey him. How do you obey him? Well, I just do what I think he wants me to do. How do you know what he wants you to do? I don't know. It just occurs to me. It just just flows through me. That makes you God. No, God gave it to us through the apostles. And that's why we got to go back to the Bible every time. Back to the Bible, back to the Bible. I am on a lifelong march back to the Bible. 
In verse 10, but to us, that's the apostles, God has revealed these things through his spirit. Now see, verse 9 is your memory verse, but verse 10 is your explanation. You can't imagine the riches that God prepared for those who love him, and here's what they are, the things he gave the apostles, the things. It's the word. This is like um, the New Testament version of Psalm 119, this passage. The passage that's the central location on Christian spirituality is about the word of God. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among the man is known, man has known the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him. So also, or likewise, the things of God no one has known except the spirit of God. This has to be the Holy Spirit by the way these words are being used. But we, the spirit of the world, have not received, but the spirit that is from God. I believe that's the human spirit, the believer's regeneration, so that we may know the things by God freely given to us. Which things we also speak, not in taught of human wisdom words, but in taught of Holy Spirit words. It's not Pastor Dave's sermon that's going to do it. It's going to be the Word of God taught by God. That's the thing. That's what we're doing. So let's do that. That's, that's the whole point. And that's why we spend so much time in the Bible. With spiritual words, spiritual ones combining. Back to he who is spiritual. But the soulish, your Bible says natural. It's, it's an awful translation. The soulish man. The reason I say, I say it shouldn't be translated natural, there's a word that we usually reserve for the word natural. It's phusis, nature, natural. Nature teaches you, right? This word is psuchikos, P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, psuchikos. And that is, um, uh, that is from suke, P-S-U-C-H-E, suke. Do you know what that word is? It means soul. It's how we, the main word for soul. Anyone know of a, of a word in English where we took the word suke from Greek and we put it into English? Psychology. psychology. The study of the soul. What is psychology about? All the Freudian stuff that we've got today. What is secular psychology about? Is it about the soul? What's it about? It's the brain. Are they right about brain chemistry in some aspects? Sure. Brain's a thing. You can study it. Can you get all of it? Can you figure out the whole thing because of the immaterial that's interfaced with the material? No, you can't get to the, to the root of it. But the brain processes can be studied. The soulish man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he's not, e- not able to know them because they are spiritually discerned. That word discernment is going to be really important. But the spiritual man, in contrast to the soulish man, the spiritual man, he discerns all things. But he by no one himself is discerned, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who will teach or instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. A couple things I want to point out. This is a very hard passage because there are so many things being described. There is the spirit of God, the spirit of man, the human spirit, the spirit of the world. At least these three. Spirit of God is almost always the Holy Spirit. The spirit that is from God in verse 14, I believe, is the human spirit. Sorry, uh, yeah. As I've told you. Verse 12, sorry. The spirit that is from God. It's a unique phrase in the New Testament, and we've talked about this a lot. Your Bible has that capitalized Holy Spirit. I think it's the human spirit, your spirit. 
the part that the word of God can divide soul from spirit and joints from, like joints from the marrow. All right. Why do I think that? Why do I think that? I believe that for a couple of reasons. Old Testament saints did not have the Holy Spirit, but they did understand the word of God. I'll say it again. The Old Testament saint did not have the Holy Spirit. That's John chapter 7. The Holy Spirit had been given because Christ had not yet been glorified, and yet they understood their scriptures, those that believed. Okay, these are the things of God, prophetic word of God. I believe that's one avenue of discussion. Another is we're talking about the man that is just soulish versus the man that is spiritual. That's the contrast. And so I want to talk about human, uh, the human being in terms of his makeup for a little bit. The soulish man in verse 14 is contrasted with the spiritual man in the rest of the passage. Soulish versus spiritual. Have you ever thought about this? There are three key passages that get into this, and it's not a major teaching on the New Testament, in the Bible. It's a very hard thing. You know where the soul first occurs in your English Bible? The soul. Where is the soul first introduced? That's right, Genesis 2-7. What does it say? It says, God made man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed the Shema, the breath of life, into his nostrils, and man, Hayah, became or was a nefesh chayim, a living soul. Nefesh. Nefesh. That's the word that we translate soul from the Hebrew. Got to go back to the Hebrew and the origin of man to understand man. Now here's the problem with connecting psuche to nefesh. The New Testament word for soul and the Old Testament word for soul. That word nefesh can mean appetite, throat, self, and in the case of the clay thing that God made called an Adam, because it's red, that's, that word is red, Adam is a play on words, that Adam is already an Adam. God made man from the dust of the ground. But then he took that thing, the physical, and he breathed neshama into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. That doesn't say God put his soul into him. That says that he, the thing that God made, became a living soul. And that means that in the Hebrew perspective, this is a complicated thing. The physical and the non-physical, the inner immaterial you and the physical you is mysteriously united so that it's you. I've got something on me is the right thing to say. You don't say on the outer husk of me there's something. You say... Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is you, but it's, there's more to you than this. You see what I mean? It's complicated. Now, the easy thing to do with this is to start drawing pictures and diagrams and saying this is how it is, just dogmatically asserting things from one or two passages of Scripture. The hard thing to do is to go through the entire Scripture on what man is and his immaterial makeup and his material makeup. And what you find is that there's something going on in the soul of man in the New Testament and the spirit of man. Three key passages on this. This is one of them where you have a soulish man who doesn't welcome the things of God. and He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man, the one who has the spirit that is out from God, the human spirit. The soulish man only has a soul, if you will. The spiritual man has a spirit too. And that's the difference. It's not the Holy Spirit necessarily it's that he has a spirit that is connected to god now this is the doctrine of trichotomy or dichotomy just out of curiosity who's ever heard the phrase trichotomy before all right who's who's heard dichotomy 
Who knows that there's an argument about this? Okay, who knows the verses besides 1 Corinthians 2 where we would go to to find out about this? So now I'm helpful. 1 Thessalonians 5, just hold the place, flip over, not in your pew, but in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to show you how very dogmatic I am about this. I know it's in 1 Thessalonians 5. There we go. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get a more summary statement. Listen to it again. Listen to the blessing that Paul says. He just rattles lists off all the time. And sometimes we want to start making multi-volume sets of discussions on his nouns. But just listen to it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may, our, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Straightforward. There's three parts, of body, soul, and spirit. It's done. Except that the word and in Greek, chi, can mean even your spirit, even your soul and body. Or your, you know, there's a, a lot of flexibility in how these words can be used. And so what you have in this verse is a list that may well indicate the three-part, the tripartite human. Notice in context, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 2, the unbeliever doesn't welcome the things of God. He's soulish. He's sukikos. He's soulish. The spiritual man discerns. And so that's the kind of the other passage. Hold your, keep holding 1 Corinthians 2 and keep going uh, forward in your Bible past Paul to the writer of Hebrews chapter 4. Who thinks it's hard to figure out this multiple immaterial portion thing? Like if you've got a soul, you aren't a soul, but you have a soul, and it's not the body and spirit together. That's what dichotomy says, is that soul is the whole man, Genesis 2-7. Trichotomy says there's more to it than that, um, 1 Thess 5 or Hebrews 4. Now, who thinks this is hard to, to sort out? Who thinks that God has this handled? And who rests in that? Okay, so Hebrews 4.12, look what it says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The point being made about the separation of soul from spirit is how sharp and cutting is the word of God. How how razor sharp, how fine is that blade to get into something that is hard, like bones and marrow. Let me ask you a question. If this is my, I think, the clearest passage on this, the question of the relationship between the soul and the spirit that is from God. The new birth with its new nature and your relationship with God that is possible only by this new birth. 
that happens when you first believe in Jesus as your Savior. The new birth that, that, that Jesus tells, uh, tells um, Nicodemus, you must be born again, that's what I believe he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 2, the spirit that's from God. When you first believed, you were born again. And this is what was before dead to God and separated from God is now made alive. It's new. That's the new nature. And I believe that this is the human spirit uh, in its regenerate state. Now, here's the idea of a bone. If I hold up a bone, um, that's, that's a big bone. Not a chicken bone. Um, if I hold a, a big old beef bone, like a soup bone, right? that hasn't been souped up. If I say, is this a bone? You'll say, yes. And I'll say, is there anything else to it? And you'll say, I don't really know what you mean. If I get a really sharp knife and I slice the bone in half, right? And you say, that's a really sharp knife you got there. And I flip it open and I say, do you see multiple components to this bone? You'll be like, well, yeah, there's the, the bone part and the marrow. And you're like, well, yeah, there's a whole anatomy involved with a bone. There's the external, there's the internal. And, uh, and if I say, is that marrow important to the bone's function? Yes. Would you call the marrow a bone? No, you'd say it's part of the vital inner workings of it, but you would distinguish bone material from marrow. You see what I mean? I, I think that's why this is hard. That's the nature of the complexity. And that's why anybody that looks at the scriptural testimony will say, this is not a simple knockdown case. This is mysterious. I, I embrace the mystery. Hey, the, the minute you think you need to know all the answers is the minute you have lost access to God showing you himself in the word because he alone is God. He has all the answers. So, but, but I, I think Hebrews 4.12 is very helpful to say there is a discernment that can be made. It is mysterious. And the word of God alone makes this separation. The word of God alone is sharp enough to make the distinction. So I wouldn't worry about it. If you're a trichotomist, it's got to be three parts. Account for the passages. If you're a dichotomist, understand the soul is somehow distinguished from the spirit. And um, let's all embrace the fact that the scriptures don't make a major case of this, even though theologians uh, in generations past have. And so what do I think? I think I'm a trichotomist, and I've wrestled with it actually in my life. I'm a trichotomist in this sense that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the soulish man is portrayed as the unbeliever. He doesn't have the necessary gear to, rep- to welcome the things of God. He doesn't have that relationship that comes about when you first trust in Christ as your Savior through the new birth. And this is really important, I think, to biblical New Testament theology. You have to understand there is a moment before which you were dead in your trespasses and sins and separated from God. And after this moment of initial faith in Christ, that you are now a new creature in Christ through the new birth called the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And that has been called conversion, the moment of your initial faith and justification by faith alone. There are lots of words you can call it. I like phase one, phase two language because before I trusted in Christ, I was this way. Now that I've trusted in Christ, I'm this way. And this is how I am forevermore. But I'm headed to a glorification that is still future. And right now I am freed from the power of sin, but not yet its presence. I'm freed from the power of sin, but I'm not freed from its presence. That's coming uh, where I will have no sin at glorification or my resurrection. 
or physical death, you're separated from that. And so um, what I'm trying to show you is there's a lot more going on here than a casual reading would suggest, and that's why you have to be careful with the Bible. Let me give you an illustration of this careful with the Bible thing. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was, uh, that was the Christmas family. Uh, Texas is a big place, so we had a Thanksgiving grandparents and a Christmas grandparents. Know what I mean? Drive down to San Antonio eight hours for Thanksgiving, where, which is, by the way, also hunting season, and it's deer country. And my dad was a big deer hunter. And, um, and then go to Dallas just a couple hours away for Christmas with my grandparents, my mom's parents. My grandmother, y'all met her, she played on that piano, Mimi. She had a marvelous collection of, of, um, of uh, various ceramic and porcelain things. And I was uh, a little boy. I admired these things from a distance. And it was a good thing. She didn't have all the Hummels, the little German figurines. She just had the best ones. You know, she had an awesome collection. Remember Precious Moments? Inesco had these little, these little cartoon kids in their various cute little poses. Yeah, she had all that stuff. All that stuff. You can't have a German shepherd anywhere near any of that. Now, I think she prized, though, of all the trinkets that she had, she loved her porcelain hummingbird on flower sculptures. They were exquisite. They looked like the the hummingbird was like a snapshot, like a living thing. But you could tell it was hand-painted. They were very special. And I remember, very, like of all the things that I was to admire from a distance, it was the little, little porcelain hummingbirds on flowers. And as far as I recall, I never broke any of them. And that's a good thing. But I'll tell you what, those things, if you, you just almost feel like they're going to break by looking at them. You feel like they're so pretty and they're so delicate and exquisite, you feel like you just, you, you just have to look at them carefully. Don't even touch them, just look at them carefully. And that beauty is only possible with that kind of delicacy. And if you come at these things with a heavy hand, and you just go, oh, you know, and you're not careful, you don't study it and look at all the little feathers and details, you miss all the genius that went into these beautiful hummingbird sculptures on flowers. The flower petals perfectly curved and with a little twist in the rose bud where it had dried out a little bit at the edge. I mean, all the little exquisite detail. If you didn't look closely and you weren't careful and you just said, oh, hummingbirds, you would miss the whole point. You would miss all the beauty of it. And I think we should approach the scriptures not like we're going to break them, but with a, with a sense of the intricacy and the beauty of what's happening. And that's how I have to approach especially a passage like this. The soulish man is what starts, stops me in my tracks when I'm casually reading. Why is he called soulish? Why is he called soulish and he can't welcome the things of God? He doesn't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. What is, this is the unbeliever. This is the world. We already have it in context. The rulers of this world don't welcome or they don't know this wisdom from God. It's other. It's hidden in a mystery and only revealed through God, through the apostles. And it's for us. You see, so that's what we're doing when we look at the importance of the word and why you have to recognize the, the parts of a man. So there's something dead in the unbeliever. There's a spiritual death that is associated with our, our fall in Adam. And the unbeliever is dead spiritually to God. And that means that no relationship. And the new birth is a new life, a new relationship. And so there is a sense of spiritual death. I once heard the explanation of soul and spirit this way. You could look at the soul like a glove and the spirit like the hand that fits in the glove to give it its vitality. 
The glove is there, it's there, but it's not. But that hand, unless it's live and vital inside, you don't have the function that you're supposed to have. That's, that's perhaps a model. But to, my intention tonight is to show you some of this delicacy, the, the, this delicate nature of the scriptures, um, where you just, you can't make clunky psychological modeling diagrams and say you're dogmatically teaching the Bible. You have to let the Bible speak on its own. Paul says... We have the mind of Christ and had a great question about the mind of Christ. And um, I've been working on this and thinking about this. What does it mean that we have the mind of Christ? The first possible meaning is that Jesus has a mind that thinks a certain way. Quit quitting. Jesus has a mind. What, can you not see it? It says capability. It's, it's going to be fine. Jesus has a mind that thinks a certain way. And so we think of a mind as a capability. That's a proper understanding of the word mind here, as Paul uses it. We have the mind of Christ. Like the vessel that you put the information in, the mind. And so illustration of that would be, have you lost your mind? (laughs) You ever ask someone that? Have kids, you will. Has anybody ever asked you that? Have you lost your mind? All right, another use of the word mind could be the content, what goes in that vessel, what goes in that capacity to think, the thought. I want you to know my mind on this. We use it that way. My mind, when I say it that way, I mean, I think a certain way and I want you to know how I think about this, the content of my thinking. We have the mind of Christ. This is the one that I lean toward on what he means by the mind of Christ. We have the content from the apostles that is the thinking of Jesus. We, the apostles, have this content. The third is both, capability and content, because if you have the ability to think like Jesus, and you have the content that Jesus thinks in one thing, and I think that's true, by the way, then you're able not just to think what he tells you, but then using what he tells you, you can think what he thinks about other things, and be, and it be discerning. And um, the capability plus content would be, it's great to be with like-minded believers, See, we're saying that you can think like I do and you do think like I do. We have the same content and the same way of thinking. And so um, I think it's either the second or the third that Paul has in mind. Pardon the pun. Hope, hope you don't mind. All right. The spiritual versus the carnal. Well, you don't need to, yeah, there we go. I, brethren, was not able to speak to you that's in context. He's talking about the message, the things of God that I hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, right? I wasn't able to speak to you as to spiritual, but as to fleshly. Paul, you keep throwing categories at me. We've got spiritual and soulish, and now we've got spiritual and carnal. Sarkikos, like bodily. Sarkos, the body or the flesh. I couldn't speak to you, so there's a contrast. I couldn't talk to you like you were spiritual men. As to babes in Christ, oh, that's an explanation of what he means by carnal. Somebody that acts as fleshly. I believe that this idea of fleshly conduct is sukikos, is soulish. I think these go together. I'll tell you why in a minute. There's a maturity problem in Corinth, 
And it is carnality versus spirituality. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. For you were not yet able, but indeed you are still not able now. And that exclamation mark is in the original. At least I think it is. It's It's an editorial remark when you translate it. You're still not able is the emphasis. I've been with you all this time, and there's been a lot of interaction between the two, a lot of back and forth. A lot of time Paul spent in Corinth, and he taught them a lot, and they don't act like they heard a thing he said. They don't act like they've heard a thing he said. It's awful to think about that. All that teaching and no profit, no effectiveness, no result. Thankful that Paul shows us that it's okay that he feels this way. Sometimes as I pastor and I deal with not you, but others of you, sometimes I feel that way. All that teaching and no effect. It's none of my business, by the way. God's doing his work. And um, I, I'm in no position to judge the effects because they're, <clears throat> they're the work of God in your life. And, and it's really between you and him. But um, you're still, Paul says, you're not able to know uh, any, good, any good solid teaching. This reminds me of a good friend I have down in Houston who plays in a symphony in a, um, in a church. She's a paid musician in a church that is trying to go contemporary, but they have a full orchestra. So do you know how hard it is to play contemporary music on a violin? There's like three notes in a song, and they repeat constantly. And it's, it, you know, I didn't even need to come here for this. You could have done this on a kazoo, literally. I mean, this is not really as they think of it, these musicians that are concert musicians, this isn't real music. And then every once in a while, they'll pull out an old song, an old hymn, and they'll say, oh, good, some real music. Something with some real substance to it. It's baby food versus real food. That's the issue, in my opinion. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able, but indeed you're still not able now. For you are still carnal. Sarkikos. Are these people soulish? They're acting like it because they're rejecting the word of God, just like the world does. That's the whole argument. They're rejecting Paul because he's not impressive like the, like the worldly philosophers. So they don't, they don't appreciate Paul because he's not coming with that worldly wisdom which rejects Christ. They're believers, but they're carnal. And here's the shocking thing that um, will really turn a lot of people's theology upside down if they'll actually listen to it you're still fleshly for when there is among you jealousy and strife and dissension that's the fruit that's the works of the flesh in galatians 5 when there are these sins of mental attitude sin that give rise to problems with others strife and dissensions are you not carnal fleshly and according to man are you not walking What can we conclude from that last statement? These Corinthians, who Paul will say, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were regenerated in 1 Corinthians 6. These are believers he's talking to. And he gave them as, as solid a diet as he could, but it was milk of the spiritual things that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard that Paul had to give them. But he knows from their fruit that they are carnal. 
They're acting like unbelievers. Can believers act like unbelievers? See, that is the big insight in this passage. We've been through so many details. We looked at all the little feathers on the hummingbird, but this is pretty thick Louisville slugger across the, the, the forehead. Okay, this is pretty straight, pretty obvious. You Corinthians, who will, he'll later say are believers, he's already called them that in chapter 1. He says, you are walking like mere men. And here is the fruit, here are the sins that we see corporately being expressed because of individual mental attitude sins like jealousy. You have corporate destruction among you that shows that you're just carnal. You're not spiritual. You're acting like the flesh or the sin nature instead of like the Holy Spirit. You're not filled with the Spirit, with the Word of God. The, the Holy Spirit is not filling your spirit with the Word of God. You're acting out of the flesh or the sin nature. That's what he's saying. And so how many people think, I mean, think about this. How many messages have you ever heard where um, you know a true believer because they act like it? Or well, you don't get saved by works, but if you're saved, you'll work. Or some other simplification that amounts, in my opinion, just one man's opinion, it amounts to the, tra- the tragic, reformed, and Augustinian model of jamming all the details into one thing and not being able to see the whole, the whole picture. See, if this is all about whether you're born again or not, and if that new birth is all that's necessary for you to walk as you should, then there is no room for maturity. Babies ought to be fully expressed adults. There is no spiritual maturation. There is no uh, expression of, 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 of the, the, the Spirit's fruit in a progressive way as you grow. There's no room for development because it's all handled by regeneration. New believer ought to act like a new believer, ought to act like a fully expressed mature believer. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, you Corinthians who have Christ and have been born and are babies in Christ, although you should be more mature, you're acting like mere men. And, and I know you by your fruits. I know that you are acting like unbelievers by what you're doing. So all the fruit inspection of whether or not someone's regenerate, I think is out the window in 1 Corinthians 3. If you want to talk about fruit inspection, and Paul does here, he says, look at what you're doing. What you basically can conclude is if you're a believer, you're walking like an unbeliever. Now let's talk about that. Parents with children who walk after the flesh, who they know they discipled in the Lord, and then they see them walk after the flesh, they know they're believers. And it challenges them, shouldn't they, when's the Lord going to snap them back? And you say, watch out, it's going to hurt. The farther they draw that elastic cord, <laughs> oh, it's going to hurt when they snap back. And um, I don't think we should ever doubt someone's conversion or their position in Christ based on their sinful practices. I really don't think that's a wise course. 1 Corinthians 6, it gets, chapter 5 gets pretty gnarly. Chapter 5 makes the same distinction I told you not to associate with pornea folk, people that are fornicators. But I didn't mean those are the world, because then you'd have to leave the world. I was talking about the so-called brother who is a pornea person. He makes, yeah, you got to associate with unbelievers in lifestyle sin. That's 
called being an unbeliever. But you've got to separate from someone in a lifestyle pattern of, of rebellion against God uh, in this area um, if they're a believer. And so I think um, we should be very careful. Now, Lewis Berry Chafer wrote a book on this. I've mentioned it many times. I hope you've read it. I hope you will read it. He that is spiritual. It's probably the best book on the spiritual life in English. I really think that. I think it's better than anything Tozer wrote. It's better than um, pretty much anything out there. Um, unless, well, it's, it's fantastic. But he got in trouble for this because it goes against Reformed theology. Reformed theology says things like if, you're, um, if you believe it's because you're regenerated first and then you believe after you're regenerated and God you know, makes you believe. I'm sorry, they don't really say it that way, but that's to me what they have to be implying. And then um, your life is kind of an experiment to see if you really did believe because he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And that's the one verse from Matthew that we know, 25. And, uh, and that's what that's talking about is that you're, you know, you're, really, re- you're really regenerate if you uh, act like it all the way. And I think that's garbage. These Corinthians are regenerate, but they're acting like unbelievers and they need to be chastised. And that's what 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians is. It's a whole book of spankings, of correction, of get back in line. That's what the book of Galatians is. It's a punitive letter, get back in line. Philippians, nope, it's an encouragement. You're doing great, do better. First Thessalonians, you're doing great. I can't believe how great, do better. But Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians are corrective letters for Christians that are acting like unbelievers. Can I show you uh, another example just real quick as we close? Galatians chapter five. Turn there for me, please. Galatians five. We'll put our finger in the Bible because what I'm gonna say is gonna be shocking. Real quick, in 3.2, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? There are too many words that are too specific for this to mean anything, but these people believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit. The people that Paul's talking to have the Holy Spirit. They're believers. Now, chapter 5. Behold, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and he means religiously to really make sure you're saved. He's not talking about surgery. He's talking about religious surgery. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives it that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. There are two interpretations of that verse. Christians can, both of them say Christians can be severed from Christ and fallen from grace. They both say that. One of them says that means they lose what Christ has given them called the new birth. They become unborn again. Somebody has managed to take them out of Jesus' hand. And he says, nothing will take you out of my hand. So we're in trouble with Romans now. 
when we say something's got us out of Jesus' hand. The other interpretation is that being severed from Christ and falling from grace is not talking about whether you're going to heaven. It's talking about whether you're walking with him in a manner worthy of your calling, whether you're walking in fellowship with him. Now, watch your context. We're being called to freedom from the sin nature, from the works of the law, from the flesh. He says he goes through this problem of circumcision and law observance. You're called to freedom in verse 13. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's talking to Christians about the Christian walk. What am I trying to say? We're not going back to when you first born again. We're talking about you need to grow up. You need to live. You need to live your spiritual life. And it's not a function. Look, spirituality and, and maturity is not a function of your age. It's a function of your time that you've put in. Remember the illustrations we close. The little kid on the ski slopes is not a good skier because he's 80. In fact, he'd be a bad skier probably at 80. He's a good skier because he's put all those hours in and his little brain and body knows how to ski. He's mature in it. The maturity that we're talking about is not necessarily from many, many years invested. It's in the moment. How are you walking with what you've been given? How are you living out what you know? How are you responding to Christ in what he's already shared with you? And you know, you've got a perfect, perfect diet. You've got a perfect Savior who has a perfect plan, and he knows exactly what we need. I believe that Galatians 5.4 is not saying these people lost their salvation. It's saying that they are walking in darkness and they need to be restored to fellowship with God. But it's harsh language. Ah, come on. Severed from Christ. The context is circumcision. They're severing something. That's the context. So you've been severed from Christ by severing something else. That's, that's important to recognize. But when we say loss of fellowship with God, and that's not loss of salvation, I don't think you should then say, well, loss of fellowship with God isn't a big deal. Oh, it's just, you know, you're just in trouble a little bit. Get a little penalty box time, a little time out with Jesus. He's not casual about this. He calls it falling from grace. Elsewhere, Paul says, check yourself to see if you're in the faith you believe in Corinthians. I'll show you my faith by my works, says uh, James and James 2. All that means that you're a true believer as opposed to a false believer. That's not what that means. James isn't talking to unbelievers. He's saying, have you ever had a trouble with your faith? Have you ever had a moment where you were disobedient to God because you weren't trusting him? Like every time you disobey God, isn't that the problem? I'm not believing that he's responsible or that I'm responsible or something. Is it show you my faith by my works for me that I actually continue to trust him and live out my faith? And so that if I'm not doing that, then that's a demonstration, just like in 1 Corinthians 3, that I'm not walking as I should walk. See, this is very important for us to grasp. You don't go back to the cross except to recognize what already happened for you. We're going back to the cross and saying, I have Christ, I have new life in him, and I need to live it. And so this is a really important distinction I think we need to make. I think it's clearest from the Apostle Paul, but John teaches it also in 1 John. And um, what we're saying is fellowship with God is really that important. To lose it is to say I've been severed from Christ, fallen from grace. You need to get out of that condition. That's a believer walking in darkness. And the solution is confession of sin and reckoning our members as instruments to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Continue to strengthen us 
Train us to think your thoughts after you and to embrace the riches of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.